from PRX. Stew. Stew. D. D. E. E. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Well, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not pen. being sniffy. I think I'm you mean, are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show, this is what I want. It's hard to get. I'm going to get it. Watch me. Let's go. When she first enters, she says, Mio superbo guerriere. Cut all this. It's too polyamorous. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay sick. You might have heard our Studio 360 news. We have moved our offices and studios to Slate Magazine. So while we're doing that this month, we'll be sharing on the show some of our favorite segments from the past year or two. Think of this month's shows as a set of Studio 360 chocolate sampler boxes. This week, the theater. The actor Frank Langella has had a career playing complex men with very dark sides. I am the last of my kind, descended from a conquering race. But I must warn you to take good care. If at any time my company does not please you, you will have only yourself to blame. In the 1970s, Langella played a seductive Dracula in a production that went from Broadway to the movies. Three decades later, he went from stage to screen again. He originated the role of Richard Nixon in the play Frost Nixon, won a Tony Award for that, and then got an Oscar nomination for the movie version. You know, it's a funny thing that I've never been uh, challenged to a duel before. I guess that's what this is. He's continued playing characters grappling with morality and mortality from an old jewel thief in the movie Robot and Frank to a KGB spy on television in The Americans. Last year, Frank Langella starred in a Broadway play called The Father by Florian Zeller. He played a man being undone by the onset of dementia. And the play itself was written and designed so that we, the audience, shared his befuddlement. Timeline switch, parts of the set appear and disappear. The same characters are suddenly played by other actors. I spoke with Langella during the run of that play. Frank Langella, thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Um, the playwright takes these sort of old uh, Pirandello, Ionesco, theater of the absurd devices and makes them literal and neurological. And it's sort of amazing that that hasn't been done. No, it hasn't. Uh, Florian's approach to this subject is completely original and unique. And there's a lot of Alzheimer's, dementia, senility-type plays. and right. It's a subject everybody is very much interested in these days. But once, you, once one sees it, you go, duh, why hasn't this been done before? Why hasn't anybody ever put the audience in the yeah. same position the patient is? Yeah, it's painfully real. And also, because it's real and we, the audience, are seeing it as you see it, it all seems perfectly normal. Yeah. Um, I want to play a clip from the show where your character Andre is talking with his daughter about one of the home care aides his family has hired to live with them. I can manage very well on my own. She wasn't easy to find, you know. It's not that easy. I thought she was really good. Lots of good qualities. She, 
And now she doesn't want to work here anymore. You are not listening to what I am telling you. That girl stole my watch. My watch, Anne. I've had that watch for years. I've had it forever. It's, it's of sentimental value. I am not going to live with a thief. That is you in The Father with Catherine Irby playing your daughter. As the play goes on, the, the audience realizes that Andre's watch has not been stolen. He just keeps forgetting where he's put it. You've said you've never been so frightened of playing a part as this one, and that King Lear, by comparison, was a walk in the park. Why was this so frightening? Well, on many levels, but certainly when you do King Lear, you know, you've got a crown on your head and you've got long costumes and robes and you're in another era and another time. So whatever the character is going through, you can sort of be somewhat, if not removed, you certainly can look upon it as a great old classic. When you play a man who is, in fact, your own age and is in normal everyday clothes and is approaching slightly less than a year of compassmentousness, if that's a word. If you're a thinking person, and I am, you must imagine yourself in that position. And I started to think about my own mortality and how I've always felt totally strong, totally on top of things, totally sure. So I had to face my own feelings of what it's going to be like when I can't come up here and sit and talk to you. When my daughter comes to see me, well, I know it's her. I purposely made myself think about those things. And of course, it just, I fell to the floor. And just, why put myself through this? But there wasn't any other way to face it, really. And as we all get old, we all think about that. But this brought it to a new, directly in your face level? Yes. And also, I haven't played a great many characters who are as vulnerable as this man is. I've played a great many men who are distanced, superior, slightly above the human race, like Dracula, Sherlock Holmes. Nixon. Nixon. So to play a regular fellow who is, my brother has this disease, and when I go to visit him, I talk about all the men I see walking up and down the halls of the hospital in diapers. And uh, I see one of them suddenly burst out in rage at a nurse and throw something. I see someone else sitting in a corner crying, looking out a window. And my doctor said, men have a much, much harder time because we are all kings of our own castles. And suddenly you take a man who's been king of his castle for 70 years of his life and put him in a diaper and sit him in a room and tell him he can't go anywhere and lock him in and give him a couple of pills to quote-unquote calm him down. Would you like that? Uh, no. No. And, and, of course, it is the great fear of getting older, of going out in exactly this fashion and seeing the play as beautiful and as sometimes funny and all that as it is. It just reminded me, like, no. I, that's not what one wants. Has it affected your relationship with your brother? Oh, yes, very much. He's my older brother. I'm, the, I'm his baby brother. He's two years older than me. And um, he's still got a great sense of humor, and he still is very clear sometimes. But you know you're watching a mind disappear. You know, it's very funny. I, I just thought of this. If you have a loved one who's dying of something, there are chances along the way for rapprochement. In this disease, that's even taken away from you. You don't get that bedside 
moment where dad looks you in the eye and says, I know I treated you kind of bad, but I love you. It doesn't happen. It seems like just technically uh, this performance must require great range in addition to the emotional drainage. Yes. I had a great deal of difficulty learning this part, and I said to the stage manager once, I'm really worried about this. He said, what are you worried about? Let the other actors worry. Go up on the line, say anything you oh, want. Oh, because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> That's They'll funny. think it's talent. That's funny. <laughs> um, being on Broadway is a bit of a homecoming for you. You were a successful stage actor before you ever had a movie career. You, you won a Tony in your 30s for your role in Edward Albee's Seascape. But I don't know anybody with a big career with as many ups and downs as you've had over the years. Yeah, which is a combination of, is exigency the right word? I'm not sure. The variables of my profession. I would take exigency. And also my own nature, which I think probably at times found the, um, the winds too heavy and decided to go from them. Really? I'm a very fortunate man, is, is that I'm basically a theater actor. So yeah. I've always been able to return to the stage. And you don't age, one doesn't age out of that. No. You can do it as long as you have breath. One good example of that was in 2006, I was offered a little play to do in England for eight weeks. And I was offered a major television series on CBS and another one on ABC. And I read this little play and I thought, I don't think I can play this part. I'm not sure I'm good for it, but I can't resist the challenge of it. So I'm going to turn down the two TV series. And the two TV series crashed and burned. But the little play I did in England was called Frost Nixon. There you go. Which led me to one of the greatest successes of my life. Absolutely. Which leads me to tell you that when I was... 24, a director said to me, try to, in your career as an American actor, associate your name with the word quality, and you will survive. So if I can pat myself a little on the back, I took that advice. I try to do the things that both frighten me and um, force me to do things I'm not sure I can handle. I'm not an actor who takes a job because it's close to a golf course. Right. You know? Yes, or you can phone it in and get paid a lot. Yeah, I can't do it. I just can't. Both in your stage career and in movies, you have played all these morally problematic creatures. Dracula, Richard Nixon, Skeletor. You're very good at playing uh, iconic villains. I'm drawn to them. Yeah. Uh, I'm drawn to men with epic problems. And I have been since I was a young actor. I always wanted to play men who had epic challenges in front of them. It thrilled and excited me to do it. And it still does, as is the case with Andre. Yeah. Uh, one of your characters who defines epic problems is Nixon. You played him both on stage and screen. Here's a short clip from the movie. You, as Nixon, are talking to the journalist David Frost, played by Michael Sheen. Are you really saying that in certain situations, the president can decide whether it's in the best interests of the nation and then do something illegal? I'm saying that when the president does it, that means it's not illegal. What are the uh, challenges of playing a real person like Nixon as opposed to a fictional figure like Andre? Is Nixon harder? Yes, and uh, as I said, I took this little play as opposed to the series, and then I discovered, I thought, oh, God, I've really put my foot in it now. I'm never going to find this man. And I had a lucky accident, which I count on in all my work, something I didn't expect 
I was watching all the tapes of Nixon before I left for London. I went to the Museum of Television and Media, and the woman gave me thousands of hours. Uh, mistakes, yes, uh, but uh, an illegal act uh, with an immoral, uh, illegal motive, no. And I was sitting there watching, thinking, oh, I, don't, I can't do this. What, I'm an idiot. I should have taken that serious. And I went to the bathroom, and when I came back, he was a, it was a still of him held on screen, and I picked up the remote and hit the button, but I hit the slow-mo button instead. And I stopped and suddenly saw Nixon moving in slow motion. I said, but Henry, I can't fire men simply on the basis of charges. And then I looked at his eyes that I hadn't seen in the regular. I saw the eyes shift a bit, and I saw the mouth go. And I began to see underneath the persona, the inner man. So then I went back and played all of it in slow motion. Huh. And that's when I began to find him. You, you played uh, King Lear, as we said, a few years ago on stage in New York. Another doomed leader. Um, another guy like your role in The Father with uh, some daughter issues and... Uh, some cognitive issues, I guess. Why is Lear this ultimate actor's role that everyone wants? Well, Lear is the great mountain to climb until you've climbed it, and then you sit down with every other actor who's ever played it, and you go, what the was I thinking? Because it's the most illogical play in the world, and the only way I could find finally to conquer him, if I did it all, was to play it as 12 separate one-act plays. How interesting. When I exited in one scene, I couldn't psychologically bring on in the next scene because a storm takes place in the middle. It's as if Shakespeare sat down one afternoon, opened the <laughs> windows, and 20 of the pages flew out into the sea, and he thought, oh, the hell with it. I'm not going to go get them. Every actor who's played Lear That's will tell you yeah. it is a monster, an absolute monster. But was it? did you feel like, okay, I've done that thing I was supposed to do? Yes, and I'm yeah. very glad I did. Uh, in addition to this very good play that you are doing very wonderfully now. You are a major character in one of my favorite television shows, The Americans. Uh, you play this KGB spy master who is the handler of the two main characters, Soviet spies, 1980s Washington. Um, this is a clip of your character, Gabriel, talking to the spy Elizabeth, uh, played by Carrie Russell. Elizabeth, your mother died. We had someone with her. She wasn't alone. She spoke of you in page. Wanted to send a message that she loved you. Did she? What do you mean? Did she really say that? Of course she did. Elizabeth, when you do what we do, it's very easy to lose your bearings. I don't want that to happen to you. That is Frank Langella in, and Kerry Russell in The Americans. Um, this guy is not only not a, apparently so far a sociopath or a monster or a crank or, or demented. He's one of the nicest guys you've ever played, it seems, mm. unless we're very much surprised in a future episode. Well, you'll, you will be surprised, but indeed he is. When I sat down with the boys who wrote it, I said... Um, I'd like to find a way not to be a cliche, mysterious, dark spy, and for him to have a humanity about him. 
And in fact, he loves these two people and is trying to save their lives every episode. He's trying to keep them from self-destructing. So this last decade, from Frost Nixon to King Lear to TV star to magnificent performance in The Father on Broadway, does this feel like, okay, this is maybe the best one of the six so far I've had in the business? In a word, yes. But it isn't the best because of the work. It's because I think I came to a rather profound realization within myself. My relationships now with my fellow workers, my own personal loved one and my family is so much better. And I keep thinking, everybody's getting nicer. But the fact is, I'm nicer. There was a wonderful article in the New York Times a number of years ago written by what I thought was a very elderly man. He's like 74. And uh, what he said was, when you get to these years, if you don't discover how important kindness is, you're going to have a miserable death. And I took that to heart. Huh. And really, that was just at 65 or 68, you just decided, I need to be kinder? No, no. It uh, actually, to be brutally honest with you, it comes from having so many doors shut in your face. And you can do one of two things. You can go into your defenses or you can stop dead in your tracks and say, I'm doing something wrong. Obi-Wan, the force is strong in you. (laughs) (laughs) Cut all this. It's too Pollyanna. (laughs) Frank Langella, this has been a complete pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. A pleasure, too. I'm happy to report that Frank Langella went on to win both a Tony and a Drama Desk Award for that performance in The Father. Coming up, a computer program can beat you with chess and drive your car, but you don't want one in charge of the timing of the English subtitles at the opera. People often think that mat titles are automated because our job is to make them so rhythmically accurate that it almost seems like it couldn't be anything other than automated. The essential and frenetic job of an opera subtitle cue caller. That's next here on Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. This month, we're settling into new offices and new studios with our new colleagues at Slate Magazine. Slate happens to make some of my favorite podcasts, like Lexicon Valley, which is a show about language and linguistics. It's hosted by my pal John McWhorter, who has been a regular guest here on Studio 360. On one recent Lexicon Valley, he talked with the hosts of another podcast called Unorthodox, which is about Judaism. And he talked with them about a touchy subject. Our topic today is, it kind of ties into the fact that I've touched on there being a black English now and then. And my thesis has been that, yes, there is a such thing. But is there a such thing, and this would be of interest, of course, to the unorthodox crew, is there a such thing as Jewish English? And if there is, what is it? And if there isn't, why not? I could not not kick this off with the following clip, which I know you're all thinking about. So let's hear this here as as an introductory nugget as to what Jewish English might okay. be. It's Mother's Day, and my daughter Robin did not show up. She's getting married, and this year she's visiting his mother. So now I'm sitting here, Elaine Wierstein, alone like a dog. <laughs> 
Thanks a lot and out with the garbage. They take bows and you're batting zero. I had a dream. <laughs> I dreamed it for you, Robin. Uh, now I'm getting a little verklempt. <laughs> Talk amongst yourselves. So the question becomes, folks, is there a Jewish way of talking? You brought on us three Jews to tell you that? Yes, yeah, so I did, because it's cultural like every appropriation. Jewish, there are probably right. several. You know, the one we talk <laughs> and the others we would never dream of talking. That was the Slate Podcast Lexicon Valley, hosted by John McWhorter, along at the end there with Mark Oppenheimer and Leo Leibowitz. As we unpack our boxes and settle in here with Slate, we wanted to share some of our favorite Studio 360 segments from the last year or two. This week, some of our recent conversations and stories about the stage, live theater. The most famous operas, the ones from the 1800s, are in French or Italian or German, but most opera goers in America can barely order a cup of coffee in those languages. So for a generation, some opera houses, like New York's Metropolitan, have subtitled operas discreetly and electronically, like with screens on the back of each seat. But when a line of translation appears on screen too late or too soon, that can be confusing and distracting. So for our new day job series, we meet somebody who has the job of getting that timing exactly right. My name is Lily Arbusser. I'm a soprano based in New York City, and my day job is that I run titles for the Metropolitan Opera. At the Met, we have these sort of very innocuous and I think quite elegant screens that we've put into the back of every chair that project the titles in LED lights in a red color. We put up the titles based on the musical measures. So if it takes a singer 10 seconds, let's say six measures to sing a line, I will say go right before the title goes up. And then I'll wait, I'll follow the music in the score until the next title appears. Again, I'll say go, and then that title goes up on the screen for for the viewer to read. I spend many hours at the opera, sometimes eight hours a day, running these titles, meaning that I say go anywhere between 600, 1500 times a night. When I get to the Met Opera, I'll walk through the stage door. I will make some left, some rights through a sort of labyrinthine space. And we walk down a beautifully red carpeted floor past the usher's office. No, I And then we take a left through a sort of secret-ish door into a tunnel that could lead us to the garaging, but instead we go through another big heavy door and we've arrived at the filing cabinet slash titles booth. It's a small box of a space. There isn't a lot of air in there. Welcome. Looks sort of like the cockpit of a plane. There are lots of lights and buttons. And the heat is the lighting calls, basically. 
At the Met, we have two people in the booth. It's me, the cue caller, and then on my right side is the titles operator. Buck, the operator, likes to listen to the lighting calls. My name is Buck Flagg. I'm an electrician at the Metropolitan Opera and uh, work in the titles department. Who's actually advancing the titles on, on the computer. You might be able to hear the orchestra warm up a little bit. If they're out there, some people might be. My score is set up, so I'll have a score with the numbers in it, and each one of those numbers refers to the titles that will be on my right side. There's a computer screen on my right that shows me which titles have come, which ones are coming, so that I can double-check to make sure that I'm on with exactly the number that I see on the computer that's also in my score. And then I also have two cameras that show me an image of the conductors. And then I also have a much larger TV screen, which will show me a miniaturized version of the stage. And that's the one I'll, from time to time, especially on dangerous entrances, dangerous in the sense that I don't really know when the singer's going to say, Dio, you know, oh God. So that's when I have to kind of take my eyes out of the score, look up at the set, and try to determine by watching their jaw or their back or their neck or anything when they're going to make that choice to take the breath so that I can lead with the title bravely, hoping that they come in exactly when I anticipated them doing so. That's a way in which actually being an opera singer is extremely important. You need to really be ahead of where the music's at in order to anticipate these titles and when they should come up so that they seem like they come with the first utterance of the singer. Go. 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 Because I have a sense of when I would breathe for a phrase, and it usually corresponds pretty, pretty well with the singer's choice as well. For example, one day in my life, I hope that I'll get to sing Desdemona or Desdemona in Otello. It's a Verdi opera. And she has this line when she first enters. She says, Mio superbo guerriere. My amazing warrior. If I were about to watch that, I would watch her and, she, and he would finish his line. She would go, Mio superba So right before, Mio, I would go, Go. And then the guys who are, who are advancing the cues would trust that I knew when the Mio was going to start. They would hit their button, the title would come up, and like magic to my eyes, I would see my superb warrior would pop up on these little tiny LED lights at the exact moment that she goes, so then you see it right away. The text comes up immediately as if it was automated. In fact, people often think that Matt titles are automated because our job is to make them so rhythmically accurate that it almost seems like it couldn't be anything other than automated because it always comes in right when you would expect to see the text. There's a lot of work that goes behind that magic. Go. The thing that's so amazing about going to see an opera or any sort of live performance is that it is live, which means 
nothing runs exactly as expected. No tempo that the conductor chooses is ever going to be spot exactly on as it was the night before or the week before. And a singer may take a little extra time to breathe on a night or may make their cadenza move at a different pace than they did the night before, which is what they should do because they're they're invested emotionally in what they're doing and that allows for time differentials. So we can't automate it because you can't have a plan that a title's going to come up at 36 minutes and 11 seconds that says, Pamina, I love you. And they're still back on the part where they're in the fight. <laughs> Go. I, like anyone else, had gone to the Met and seen the titles and hadn't really given them a second thought, hadn't thought that there was a person sitting in a cabinet somewhere who was making sure that I could understand the words of the opera. Go. The cue caller position is what I do to pay the bills, but also it's sort of an institutionalized learning opportunity for me. I am still what you would consider like a fledgling in this career, both inexperienced, but also just age-wise. I just turned 30, and my voice is just starting to come into its most beautiful and mature qualities. I have been studying voice for 14 or 15 years, but I've really only started to understand my instrument maybe in the last three years. And... It's only now that I'm starting to get opportunities and really start to build my career. This world of titling really changed the way that I look at the opera. It allowed me to go into one of the greatest opera houses in the world and demystify it, but also in some ways absorbing the music of the operas that I'm working on myself or dreaming of singing one day. That is Lily Arbisser singing a piece from the opera Louise. Zoe Saunders produced that story. So, that's my show, guys. <laughs> this month, we're settling into our groovy new offices with our new production partner, Slate Magazine. And this week, we're playing some of our favorite recent segments about theater. When it comes to American musical theater, Jack Vertel is a kind of human encyclopedia. He's the artistic director of Encores, which is this great series at Lincoln Center in New York that resurrects old musicals, but that is just one of his jobs. He's also a prolific hands-on producer of major Broadway shows, including Hairspray and Kinky Boots. I spoke with Jack Vertel after he published a great book called The Secret Life of the American Musical, How Broadway Shows Are Built. Jack has been in the business for 30-odd years, but he has been a super fan forever. I was five years old, and my grandmother, Daisy, and my parents took me to see Peter Pan at the Winter Garden with Mary Martin. I'm 
the end of the first act of that show where they all fly out the window to Neverland and the curtain falls on the last note of music is one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me. Did a a 40-year-old woman playing a boy not strike you and everyone as weird? You know, I don't—it didn't strike me as weird. I do remember—I don't remember too much about being five and seven-eighths years old, but I do remember my parents telling me that I would be able to see the wires, that they weren't really going to fly, and I think they wanted to keep me from, you know, disappointment. Although, actually, the wires were one of the most exciting things about the whole event for me because I could watch— uh, magic in action somehow or other. So you were happy to not suspend disbelief totally? I was happy to know what the terms of suspending disbelief would be, that I had to accept the wires, that I had to accept that people were going to sing, that there was an orchestra right in front of me. I was in row A, one and three. And so I could actually look over the rail at the brass section, which I did from time to time. And, and I spent the entire first intermission doing it because it was the most beautiful sight I think I'd ever seen. Really? So uh, what did you do next? Actually, next is an interesting question. I spent the next month or so after I had gone home and told my friends at school the next morning that I would make them all fly at my sixth birthday party in a frantic uh, fear of what would happen when they came over and I didn't know how to make them fly. You little liar. I was a little liar, and I actually sort of went out and pretended to be building a flying machine in the backyard so that I could help, but I knew that it wasn't really going to make them fly. And I was in a panic on my sixth birthday, but my mother told me it wouldn't matter, and it didn't matter. They'd all forgotten that I had done yeah. that. It sounds like, okay, you're six years old. Uh, no wonder you're doing what you're doing now. I mean, it, it does does it feel like, okay, that's the moment, Com- my aha moment? Yeah, Completely. I tried to do a few other things in my life, but I never really wanted to do anything but participate in the theater in some way or other. And I think certainly at that age and even at a much older age, I didn't know that there was anything except acting because when you're a kid and you go to the theater, you see acting. So in high school and college, you did that stuff? In high school, I acted all the time. We did five plays a year, and I was in all five of them. I did two shows as a freshman in college and realized virtually instantaneously that being the best actor at a small boys prep school in Connecticut was not the same thing as being an actor, and that was the end of my acting career. Yeah. And so how did you ended up being a, a theater critic at the L.A. Herald-Examiner? Correct. I started out as a theater critic for something called the L.A. Reader, which is uh, the Reader still exists in the places like Chicago yeah, and, yeah. and San Diego. The one in L.A. never really caught on, but I, that was where I started, and that's where the Herald folks read my stuff, I guess. And when their theater you were critic retired, they, they said, do you want this job? And I said, you bet. And then your next job was as the dramaturge at the Mark Taper Forum, also in L.A., uh, by the way, am I supposed to say turge or turg? We said turg at the Mark Taper. Yeah. You can say turge, but you know we also spelled it without an E at the end. Yeah. Oh. So. Uh, the, dramaturg or dramaturge is one of those words that we people who aren't in the theater, oh, yeah, we, we yeah, fine. Okay, I get that. But 98% of civilians don't know what that means. What does it mean? I, it doesn't mean anything, as it turns out. It's a German word that I think in Europe has a definite meaning, although I couldn't tell you precisely what it is. Um, but it, what... It turned out to be at the Mark Taper was that I was sort of – Gordon Davidson was the artistic director who was one of the sort of lions of the not-for-profit theater movement. Um, I ghost wrote his program notes. I did research when we did plays and put up pictures on the rehearsal room wall of what Hedda Gobbler's life was likely to have really been like and 
1890, whatever it was. Um, and I worked with playwrights on emerging work, uh, trying to help them sort out things that still needed sorting out, which was really the part of it that was most uh, useful to me. So you're like an editor coach. Kind of, yes. Yeah. Um, you have written this uh, fascinating, entertaining book uh, that is sort of like – uh, the decoder book, uh, <laughs> blueprint book for the musical, how they really work. Um, and now I've seen one musical since I read it, and it did make me watch it in a different way. Uh, so let's go through this masterclass. Uh, the overture <laughs> is is was, in the old days, the instrumental beginning of the show. Then the opening number. Break down the important component parts of a great opening well, number. Michael Blakemore, the director, had this wonderful thing that he said once at a dinner party that I was at, which is, the minute the curtain goes up, the audience is in trouble. And what he meant by that was that you don't really know where to look or what you're looking at. And, and of course, scenery helps tell you where, the, where we are. But an, a great opening number, I think, typically doesn't delve into the plot of the show quite yet, but sets a tone, uh, introduces you to what the world of the piece is, when the piece is happening. And, and it should do all of that work, you know, in a, an unexpected way that makes you want to get on the ride and, uh -huh. and, and find out where it's going to happen. There are no rules yet in the show. Right. But by the end of it, you should pretty much know what the territory of yes. the show is. Okay, I want to play one of your textbook opening numbers from Oklahoma in 1943. And, and while it's playing, explain what we're seeing on stage. There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. There's a bright We're outdoors, haze on the very, very far from Broadway. The corn is as high as an elephant's This is a cowboy who wanders on stage, whose love for the land and for his surroundings is completely unguarded. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful I got a beautiful feeling Everything's going my way Before Oklahoma, most shows started with a, a, a chorus of people on stage singing some form of, you know, welcome to the show or a pretty girl is like a melody or whatever. And Rodgers and Hammerstein, who had agreed to adapt this play that was set on a rural farm and didn't have any opportunity to bring a chorus of people on right at the beginning. And so they wrote this number for a single person to wander out on stage by himself. And nothing like that had ever been tried before. And I'm so happy to learn that and think of that because, of course, one thinks of Oklahoma and that song as so old-fashioned, so corny. And yet it was the height of modern minimalism, I guess, in 1943. It was. It really startled people. And I think it startled them with less rather than with more. And yeah. that in itself was startling yeah. because shows— Musical shows tend to be muscle-bound. You know, they yes. want to do everything all the time. Yes. So, flash forward, 1975, 30 years later, a chorus line, which once again reinvented the musical. When the show starts, we are in the middle of an audition for a Broadway show. From the top, a five, six, seven, eight. Dancers, 25 or so, are working on a routine, but they're in rehearsal clothes. This is an interesting moment because it combines a classic opening number, which is the everybody on stage opening number, and here's the location and here's the point of view of the show, with what we call an I want song, which is the song that says, this is my ambition, I have to achieve this. God, I hope I get it. I hope I get it. How many people does he need? How many people does he need? 
So the next key component is, as you say, the I want song, which is the main character explicitly saying, here's what I'm after. Musicals are very uh, different than most other forms of storytelling in that they keep stopping and starting. They're songs and dances and costume changes and scenery changes. And if you don't have someone driving the story forward in a very specific way, it's hard to succeed. Um, And so one of the things that tends to work really well in a musical is a character stepping up and saying, this is what I want. It's hard to get. I'm going to get it. I'm going to die trying if I don't get it. Watch me. Let's go. And musicalizing that moment is a is a, a challenge that we all call the I Want song. Gypsy has a great, very explicit I Want song called Some People Set Up What What Has Happened, What What We Are Seeing. Well, in the opening scene of Gypsy, it has a, it has a very... Uh, um, modest opening number, which is two little girls who are a kitty act in vaudeville uh, doing their number. I will do some tricks. Sing out the wings. I'll tell you a story. After it's over, we realize that the, the, the main character of the story seems to be the mother of these two girls and that they have no talent. Um, but she's going to get them out and, and get them on stage. One way or another. One way or another. And of course, the real ambition is not for them. It's for her. Some people can be content Playing bingo and paying rent That's peachy for some people For some humdrum people to be Ethel Merman. Ethel Merman, the Ethel Merman. But some people ain't me I never forgave my parents for not taking me to this show. I had a dream a wonderful dream, Papa. All about June and the Orpheum circuit. Give me a chance and I know I can work it. I had a dream. It's also uh, a show about show business, like Chorus Line. That, that right. works a lot, I guess, when it works. The, the show business metaphor for musicals, is, it gives you lots of opportunities to sing and dance that seem earned in some way or other because it's show business. So, yeah. you know, you get to watch the number in the show and yes. the number in the show yes. within the show. Uh, the hugely successful, maybe transformative musical right now, of course, is Hamilton. And one of the reasons is that uh, when you look past its innovations and its newness, using hip-hop, racially counterfactual casting, it's really an old-fashioned musical. In some ways, it is. It has an opening number. It has an I Want song. It has a, a lot of sort of typical pieces of the machine in it. And its I Want song is? It's called My Shot. I'm not going to miss my shot. I know the action in the street is exciting, but Jesus, between all the bleeding and fighting, I've been reading and writing. We need to handle our financial situation. Are we a nation of states? What's the state of our nation? I'm past patiently waiting, I'm passionately smashing every expectation, every action's an act of creation. I'm laughing in the face of casualties of sorrow. For the first time, I'm thinking past tomorrow. And I am not throwing away my shot. I am not throwing away my shot. Hey, yo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not One of the great things about hip-hop is 
two great things. One is that just energetically, it really does drive you forward. Yeah. And the other is that thematically, a lot of the best hip-hop is about social change. And this is a show about a society being formed. So they, they really go very well together. A much better natural mate for musical theater than classic rock and roll, which tends to have lyrics that are repetitive or uh, very simple-minded or, uh, you know, uh, Jerry Lieber, who wrote a lot of the early rock songs, right. once said, most of my songs are content-free. <laughs> and I thought it was a great phrase. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you've worked uh, as a dramaturg and a producer on lots and lots of musicals, including M. Butterfly and The Producers and Jelly's Last Jam. I, I, I'm fascinated by when you were wrong about something and and were proven wrong. Uh, there, there's a number in Hairspray that uh, Motormouth Maybell sings toward the end with the, with the ensemble. It's a very it's a six Singer. eight gospel classic. I know gospel. where I've been. Yes, I know where I've been, and it replaced a number called Step On Up, which was a much hotter number, you know, much jazzier number. And I really felt it was not right to stop this show in its tracks, which is basically a campy comedy with a political edge with to a, it. Yeah, to have this whole civil to rights To have this aria. whole little, like, quite somber civil rights moment. I was yeah. 100% wrong. I mean, it wasn't that I was afraid of the politics of it, because the whole show is political. Right. But the composer and lyricist, Mark Shaman and, and Scott Whitman, and the director, Jack O'Brien, and the various book writers, really wanted to stop and 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 just pause. And I thought, we'll never recover from this, you oh. know. How will we ever You're the boss. Past? How did they beat you down? I wasn't the boss. I oh. was the dramaturg. Oh. Uh-huh. <laughs> when I saw it up on its feet, I thought, well, that was stupid. I mean, obviously, it was yeah. a great, great idea. That was Mary Bond Davis in your original Broadway production of Hairspray. A musical like that is in sharp contrast to Stephen Sondheim, who's a genius with his own brand of musicals, complicated, lyrically, musically, philosophically. But it strikes me, tell me if you agree or disagree with this, that in this century, in the first decade of this century, something happened that allowed musical comedies to be actually funny and huge hits again. And I'm thinking of Hairspray and Book of Mormon. And and I felt like, to the degree I went to musical theater, new musical theater in the previous 25 years, like, and And suddenly the, the, the atmosphere allowed those shows to happen. Um, I think that's true. I think we went through a real shock of the new about ourselves uh, around the time that Stephen Sondheim was writing Company and Follies, where we all woke up and, you know, the Vietnam War was uh, coming to an end. Uh, it actually ended on the night of the first out-of-town preview of A Little Night Music. Um, That's a like, fact you just happened to know? I was there. I oh. carry you stopped the curtain call and announced uh-huh. that an accord had been reached. Uh-huh. Uh, it was quite a moment. Um, and, and I think we uh, wandered around a little bit shell-shocked for a while as a nation uh, after that. Somehow, in the, in the last 10 years or whatever, we found – new and different ways of making merry uh, in a seri- you know it's a seriously good thing i think yeah. but those new and different ways do involve a fair amount of cynicism a fair amount of 
you know, gimlet-eyed view of the world. So that you, you would Meaning ne- they're actually funny, as I said. Well, they're actually funny, right. But you would never confuse Hairspray with, uh, you know, a musical comedy from the 50s. Right. It, uh, just they're different. They're right. really different. Right. Uh, say a Book of Mormon, most of all, perhaps. No, it sort of had to d- almost die as a form to be reborn. In a sense, I guess. Uh, or, uh, you know, the cultural clock had to go around yes, quite a few times. Yes, yeah. So your family has been in theater to lesser or greater degrees for generations, starting with your grandpa. My grandfather uh, had a building business. Uh, he built a couple of Broadway theaters, and he built theaters all around the country. Was, this is in the teens and 20s? This was in the 20s, probably. Yeah. Uh, the Broadway theaters were both built in the 20s. And uh, and then my father, who eventually went into business with him and was in that business for a long time, wrote a play his senior year in college, which was produced on Broadway in 1937, the year after he wrote it, that ran at the theater where Hamilton is So now. Proudly We Hail? Called So Proudly We Hail. So uh, I wanted to think of a song to play you out on. At the end of this interview, the obvious would be, uh, of course, from Annie, Get Your Gun, uh, Ring Berlin's uh, There's No Business Like Show Business, but too obvious. So what should we play you out on? Well, um, you know, uh, Broadway Baby, which is from Follies, is a song that's about a slightly pathetic character who wants to be in show business. How about that? Self-deprecating to the end, or at the end. Jack Fertel, this has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just a Broadway baby Walking off my tired feet Pounding 42nd Street To be in a show I spoke with Jack Vertel last year. Broadway, baby. And that's it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is produced by Public Radio International in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is... Louis Mitchell. Our producers are... Sam Kim. Skylar Swenson. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. And our intern is... Claude Gillette. I'm Kurt Anderson, and thanks very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, every industry has its own way of calling somebody a hack. For people who write movie music, it's kind of cute. Maybe in the animation world, they use the term Mickey Mousing as a more affectionate term, but when I hear it, it's usually a pejorative, I have to say. Hollywood composer Carter Burwell teaches me how to talk like him. That's next time in Studio 360.